Before we get started, if you have not yet listened to episode 11, The Peculiar Poisoning of Charles Bravo, then I strongly recommend you stop here. Go back and listen. If you choose to continue anyway, fair warning, there are spoilers almost immediately. This is London Court. Here is a news flash. Welcome back to Blunt History. I'm your host, Greg Metelsky. When we last left the Bravos, they had just been separated. Florence went back to the Priory, and Charles, well, he went into the ground. The conclusion of the subsequent coroner's inquest was open, but suggested that Charles Bravo had either intentionally or mistakenly ingested a poison called antimony, causing his own death. In other words, he killed himself. Now, does that seem like a satisfactory conclusion to you? Is it possible that in the midst of all his scheming, Charles Bravo suddenly decided his only option was suicide? Well, let's take a look at the nature of his character. Prior to his becoming acquainted with Florence, Charles had an out-of-town mistress with whom he had an illegitimate child. They weren't married, though. I'm assuming that's because she wasn't of an acceptable social status or something like that. Now, this relationship has the appearance of being a self-serving one for Charles. He gets all the sex and none of the consequences. When he meets Miss Moneybags, he instantly ditches his mistress and kid and is married within the year. He openly admits to Florence and to others that the main reason for the marriage was so he could get his greedy little fingers on her money. And of course, as you've heard, Florence wasn't a chump. She put up a fierce fight to keep her money. She went to court and had a prenuptial agreement struck and ratified. When the customary and legal means of acquiring her money were denied to him, Charles Bravo changed his strategy. He began firing staff from the Priory. He fought vehemently over control of the household spending. He verbally and physically abused Florence. All of this behavior is very self-serving, and it doesn't seem like he had many scruples. Remember, his friend and law partner described Charles as a man of little sentiment. Now, Charles may not have been a man possessed of self-love. One can never truly know. But his actions belie a man possessed of self-interest. There is little doubt that Charles met resistance with resistance and was willing to do anything to win. He may have even been anally raping his wife to make his point. So in character, Charles Bravo doesn't come across as a man who would willingly kill himself. There are a few other reasons to rule out suicide. First... Antimony potassium tartrate, or emetic tartar, 
is possibly the worst poison to use to kill yourself. In a nutshell, antimony mimics the effects of arsenic, and it is highly caustic, meaning it burns whatever it touches. Remember Charles Bravo's red bowel movement? The one Jane Cox said was a result of excessive red wine consumption? Well, that was his stomach and intestines beginning to dissolve. Can you imagine the pain? He endured it for over 50 hours before he finally died. So why would a guy take a poison like that? Let me be the devil's advocate on your behalf. Maybe Charles didn't know much about emetic tartar, other than that it was poisonous. But odds are against that. You see, Charles Bravo was a lawyer, and during his studies, he specialized in medical law, which required him to acquire a certain medicinal awareness, which would include knowledge of emetic tartar. The line of logic here is that no one would knowingly subject themselves to this degree of pain and suffering when there were so many other poisons readily available in Victorian homes. A perfect example is laudanum, which Bravo had admitted taking. Now, take too much of that and you're a goner. But it's more like morphine. Peaceful. Secondly, people who are planning to kill themselves tend to not make plans for the future. On the day he was poisoned, Charles met an old friend out in the street, a guy named Frederick McCalmont, and invited him for tennis on the following day. And finally, he didn't leave a suicide note, nor did he make any statements relating to suicide. I would argue that based on all of this, we can safely rule out suicide as an option. How then did the first coroner's inquest reach such a conclusion? Well, there were politics and money at play. There were five doctors at the Priory the night Charles Bravo fell ill. Dr. Moore, a local practitioner, Dr. Harrison, Florence's physician, and then there's Charles Bravo's cousin, Roy's Bell, and his senior partner, Dr. George Johnson. And finally, the prestigious Dr. Sir William Gull, who was a friend of Florence's wealthy father. As an aside, Sir William Gull has been theoretically linked to Jack the Ripper's murders. In fact, if you've watched the Hughes Brothers movie, From Hell, starring Johnny Depp, which is about the Ripper murders, then you'll recognize Sir William as the character played by Sir Ian Holm. However, the theory linking Gull to the Ripper is incredulous at best. Gull was 71 years old and in declining health when the Ripper was active. Besides, Jack the Ripper was Herman Mudgett on a European vacation. Didn't you know? <laughs> okay, back to the story. Of these five doctors, two seem to take on not only a leadership role, but dramatically different readings of Bravo's unwillingness to say anything about the poisoning. Dr. Johnson tells Charles that if he doesn't say anything, then someone will be accused of his murder. Later that night, Dr. Gall tells him if he doesn't implicate someone else, then it will be considered suicide. Interesting. Johnson, friend to the Bravo family, thinks murder. Gull, friend to Florence's family, thinks suicide. Sir William Gull would go public with the following statement. Quote, I saw not the slightest indication in his manner that he ever suspected anyone of poisoning him. He did not behave like a man who thought he was being murdered. Mr. Bravo was indifferent to his plight. If I were to tell a man that he was dying of poison and he showed no surprise, then that would lead me to think that he knew it already. And here's the kicker. Dr. Johnson, who thought it might have been murder, while well, he was excluded from the first coroner's inquest, even though he was present and willing to testify. He actually stood up and asked the coroner if he could testify. And the coroner told him, quote, We don't require any further evidence. 
it is quite unnecessary to examine you. End quote. Keep in mind, Dr. Johnson is a most prominent British surgeon, vice president of the Royal College of Surgeons, no less. It seems odd that the coroner would choose to exclude him, unless someone else was surreptitiously orchestrating the inquest. And lucky for us, Dr. Johnson offers us some insight into that matter. Quote, On the morning of Friday, April the 28th, about 10 a.m., Mr. Campbell, the father of Mrs. Charles Bravo, the widow of the deceased, called on me at my house and said to me that he had been advised by Sir William Gall to come to me, or words to that effect. Mr. Campbell further said to me, as near as I can recollect, the following words. The question is, what verdict shall we get? I can get a verdict of suicide in five minutes. I said, how? He said, by repeating Sir William Gall's opinion. I said, well, it may be suicide, but so far as I can see, there is no evidence to show it. And the only possible verdict is an open one, that he died by antimony. I added that I thought of going to the inquest. He said he hoped that I would not go, or he thought I had better not go, and that he would telegraph for me whether I should come or not. I received no telegram, but I went to Balham that afternoon and attended the adjourned inquest about 4 p.m., end quote. So Florence Bravo's father, Robert Campbell, appears to have been interfering with the inquest, steering it away from any conclusion of murder. So, how do we feel about suicide as an option now? Well, it's most likely a fabrication. Or maybe not. It could have been misadventure, which in this context is basically unintentional or accidental suicide. Now hear me out. What if Charles Bravo was trying to poison Florence? One of the more devious uses of antimony was to spike an alcoholic's beverage with a small dose, which would cause them to vomit and to stop drinking, theoretically. Florence was a heavy drinker. Charles had taken issue with her drinking on more than one occasion. So, let's imagine, with his knowledge of antimony gained through his legal studies, and his access to it via the stable, that he decided to deter Florence's consumption of alcohol. Or maybe even more sinister, he was trying to kill her for her money. He'd have the antimony hidden among his possessions, or on his person. So on that fateful night, he'd had a harrowing experience with a horse, and had consumed a fair amount of alcohol himself. He was in pain from a toothache. His stepfather had pissed him off with a letter criticizing his business dealings, and he was mad at Florence, as usual. Clearly, he's got a lot going on in his mind, and in his distracted state, he accidentally applies too much laudanum to his tooth. He knows he'll die unless he vomits, so he instinctively reaches for his stash of antimony. But by now, the laudanum is overpowering him. His intoxication is near complete, and he accidentally takes way too much antimony. Maybe he takes all that he's got, which would explain why none was found. Uh-oh, he's in trouble now. So he runs from the room, yelling, Florence! Florence! Hot water! And we know what happens next. This theory accounts for why he remains silent when asked to implicate someone. He couldn't say anything without revealing his plot to poison Florence. It also accounts for some, but not all, of Jane Cox's strange behavior that night. It's plausible Charles did tell her he had taken poison and to not tell Florence. He could have whispered to her between heaves and wretches, too low for Marianne Keebler to hear. Remember, Keebler standing only a few feet away at the guest room bedroom door. The problem here is that Cox made absolutely no effort 
whatsoever to protect his secret. She almost immediately claimed she could smell chloroform, which in hindsight was an obvious lie. And this raises a very important question. Why would Jane Cox lie? And now we move on to theories of murder. But before we go any further, we need to understand how the antimony was administered to Charles Bravo. The police concluded the most likely conveyance of the poison was through water. You see, Charles Bravo was in the habit of having a tall glass of water each night before going to sleep. This was a steadfast habit, which he never wavered from. It was Marianne Keebler's responsibility to leave a jug of water on the nightstand beside his bed, which she dutifully fulfilled before Bravo retired. So the water would have been in the room before Charles went to bed. It would only take a moment or two to open the door and drop the antimony into the water. But who was alone and upstairs that night? This is an important question. Now, it's easy to point the finger at Jane Cox. Her motive was obvious. She was about to be fired from her cushy, high-paying job. Losing her job would be devastating for her children and herself. Plus, there was a moment when she was alone in the upstairs hallway. Florence sent her back downstairs for some wine, then continued into her bedroom. Theoretically, this left Jane Cox with enough time to administer the poison. Now, there's no denying she did some strange things that night. First, she offered no response whatsoever when Charles Bravo yelled from the top of the stairs, preferring to continue knitting at the foot of Florence's bed. Surely she had heard Bravo's outburst, yet she had to be mustered into action by Marianne Keebler. Then she sends for Dr. Harrison, Florence's local doctor, knowing full well that it would take a long time for him to arrive. In fact, Dr. Harrison didn't show up to the Priory until after midnight. That's three hours after being sent for. Why didn't Cox send for a doctor who could respond faster? Was she hoping that Charles would die in the meantime? Possibly. When Florence finally woke up, the first thing she did was countermand Cox's order to send for Dr. Harrison. Florence wanted a faster response, so another servant is sent out to fetch Dr. Moore. Now, the big questions become, when was Charles Bravo's soiled shirt changed? You remember the shirt he vomited on? Someone changed it and put a clean one? And when was the bowl of vomit rinsed out? And by whom? Did it happen prior to Florence's awakening or after? Jane Cox had taken on the role of primary caregiver prior to any of the doctor's arrivals. And by all accounts, she didn't leave the room. Therefore, she had to have been responsible, or in the least, aware of the efforts to conceal the reality of the situation. She was alone with Bravo while Keebler was downstairs fumbling around in the kitchen. Maybe that's when these things happened. It's strange that when Dr. Moore arrived, no one told him Charles had ingested poison. The doctor initially treated him for collapse, but it didn't take long for him to figure out something else was amiss with his patient. Ah, crap. Jane Cox's story isn't holding up, so she reacts quickly. She corners the next doctor, Dr. Harrison, at the front door and immediately informs him that Charles had taken too much chloroform. Now, during Dr. Harrison's subsequent examination, Charles Bravo passes a bloody red stool. Jane offers the subterfuge that it's because he drank way too much burgundy at dinner, but the attending doctors don't believe her for a second. Then Roy's Bell and Dr. Johnson arrive at the Priory, and their inquiry into Bravo's condition starts to include intentional poisoning, or murder as a possibility. And what does Jane Cox do? She immediately pulls Roy's Bell aside and informs him that Charles told her he had purposely taken the poison himself. It's suicide not murder. That Charles Bravo would commit suicide did not rest well with Roy's Bell, 
He tries to confirm Cox's story to little avail. First, he questions Dr. Harrison. Sure, he was told about the chloroform story, but it most certainly did not imply suicide. Then he questions Charles himself, who had just regained consciousness. Oddly, Charles does nothing to confirm or deny the allegation. He could only remember taking laudanum. Now, there are some problems with the theory that Jane Cox was the murderer. For a shrewd character, such as Jane Cox, who not only survived, but thrived as a widow with children in Victorian England, these efforts to conceal the murder plot seem reactive, rather than planned. Oliver's statements that night were relatively transparent and could be easily disproved. Besides, for several months now, Jane had been aware that she was about to inherit a small fortune from an ailing relative in Jamaica. Therefore, the loss of her job, which at first appeared to be devastating, was not so much so. The job at the Priory was no longer as essential to her survival as it had previously been, and so her motive for murder evaporates. But then why did she tell so many obvious lies? Well, there's a couple of potential explanations. Let's review her quote-unquote coincidental meetings with Dr. Gully. What if Gully was the murderer and Jane Cox was his dupe or patsy? Gully was extremely bitter because he lost Florence to Charles Bravo. In a sense, Gully lost everything to Charles Bravo. He had given up his lucrative private practice at Malvern for Florence. His professional and social reputation had been irreparably damaged when his affair with Florence was exposed, and he couldn't regain his reputation. But maybe he could regain Florence's love. It's possible his meetings with Jane Cox were less than coincidental. Ask yourself this. What could the two of them possibly have to talk about other than Florence? Jane Cox told Gully about the miscarriage. We know because they both admitted as much during the second inquest. Maybe she also told the doctor about how Charles Bravo was abusing her. And maybe, just maybe, Gully saw an opportunity. He could mix up a concoction, which Cox could use the next time she thought he was going to abuse her. It would render him unconscious, but would otherwise be safe. No one could know about it. So the concoction was sent to Cox's personal residence, rather than to the Priory. On that fateful evening, during dinner, Charles angrily declared Florence's convalescence from the second miscarriage was over and that he would be returning to the master bedroom. Jane Cox decides that this is her moment. She's alone in the upstairs stairwell for a second. She sneaks the guest room door open a crack, reaches in, and empties the concoction into his jug of water, then goes about her business thinking he'll just pass out. But then, Charles Bravo reacts unexpectedly. Jane doesn't respond to his initial yelling because she's in shock. In that moment, she realized she was duped. Her best bet was to delay medical attention and let him die. But then, she was forced into action by Marianne Keebler. She panics and began to cover her trail as best she could, reacting to everything as it happened, rather than following a well-laid-out and executed plan. Well, why not rat out Dr. Gully? Would you? You'd have to admit you administered the poison, which is tantamount to confessing to murder. Good luck proving you were tricked by the wily Dr. Gully, who would only have to feign any knowledge of the murderous plot. In that scenario, it would be her word against his, and Jane Cox was unlikely to receive fair treatment under those circumstances. Could a woman as shrewd as Jane Cox be duped into committing a murder? Not likely particularly since her tenant was a witness to her receiving a medicine containing a poison label. Coupled with the fact that she would soon be independently wealthy, and the likelihood of her following through with Gully's plan diminishes. 
This brings us to the second and most likely scenario to explain Jane Cox's strange behavior that night. She was covering for Florence. Florence had more at stake than anyone else in the Priory, and therefore her motive for murder was the strongest. There's a reason why the police always investigate the spouse of a murder victim first. That's because history has shown the spouse is the most likely perpetrator. Florence was being physically and mentally abused by Charles. It was easy for her to believe he was trying to kill her. Forget about the surreptitious plot I proposed a little while ago, in which Charles was trying to poison Florence. There's no actual proof of that. However, there is no denying he was going to get her pregnant, whether it killed her or not. Dr. Harrison had explicitly informed her that another pregnancy could be fatal, so she had every right to be in fear of her life. That night, Florence knew her convalescence was over. Another, potentially fatal pregnancy was imminent. So she sends Jane Cox downstairs for some wine, giving herself the alone time she needed to drop the poison into Bravo's water. Then she retires to the master bedroom, where she starts to have second thoughts. Now, she needs to be alone with Jane to tell her what she's done. Maybe she wants Jane to go and refresh the jug with clean water. She asks Marianne Keeler to go downstairs for another glass of wine, which leaves her alone with Jane. But there's no time for Florence or Jane to do anything, because moments later, Charles bursts into the room, raging about how much wine Florence was drinking. Then Charles goes to his room, drinks some water, and applies laudanum to his sore tooth. He thought he took too much laudanum, but it was the antimony starting to take effect. He runs out into the stairwell, and well, you know the rest. All of Jane's strange behavior and reactions to the situations are an effort to protect her mistress, Florence. But there's one other oddity from that night. How many doctors were enough to make an effective diagnosis? Dr. Moore, the first one to arrive, had everything figured out. He knew Charles had ingested an irritant poison, and there was little he could do to help. Dr. Harrison arrives and concurs with Dr. Moore's conclusion. But these two doctors were out of their depth in terms of social and financial standing, so they probably couldn't reasonably accuse anyone in the house of murder without causing some sort of stir. Hence, Roy's Bell and his senior partner, Dr. Johnson, are called in. It's upon their arrival and investigation that a murder plot begins to unfold. This is not good for Florence. So a doctor even more senior and famous than Dr. Johnson is called upon. Of course, I'm referring to the eminent Dr. Sir William Gull. He's one of Queen Victoria's personal physicians and is a close personal friend of Florence's father. He comes to the Priory that night with all his swagger and overshadows all other medical professionals in the sick room. It's no surprise his opinion is suicide. You could argue the only reason he is there is to protect Florence. Now let's take a look at some of the things that occurred long before Charles received the fatal dose of antimony. Florence visits Dr. Harrison and tells him she is being anally raped by Charles. Which could very well have been true, but it could just have likely been a fabrication meant to imply she was being abused. Is she attempting to set up some sort of self-defense scenario? It's one thing to have your household staff testify to abuse. Anything a servant claimed could be easily discounted as they would be biased to their employer. In this case, the bias would be in Florence's favor, because Charles proved himself to be a bit of a sharp thorn in the household. However, to have a doctor confirm the abuse allegations would carry much more influence. Another thing, do you remember the day when Charles left for work, then spent the next eight hours puking his guts out? What was that all about? I suppose it could have been an eight-hour stomach flu, because those are common, but it could also have been a trial run for the actual murder. 
This is interesting because of the timing. It was just two or three weeks before her second miscarriage. Therefore, it was before Dr. Harrison told her that these pregnancies could be fatal. He had only told her that any pregnancy was unlikely to go to full term. Now, Florence had every reason to believe Charles was interested in nothing more than her money. He told her as much on several occasions. When they were married, Florence rewrote her will in Charles's favor. But that could have been changed at any time. If, for whatever reason, the fortune didn't go to Charles upon her death, it would certainly go to Florence's child. And that child would be in Charles's care and custody. And so would the child's inherited fortune. This implies Florence poisoned Charles not because she was afraid for her life, but that she was afraid for her money. By this logic, it's telling that the anal rape allegation was introduced by Florence before her first pregnancy and miscarriage. And the trial run for the poison occurred before her second miscarriage. She knew what Charles was up to, and she was plotting to stop him. Equally telling is what occurred after the second coroner's inquest. Jane Cox left Florence's employ, and the two women, who were once as close as mother and daughter, never spoke again. It's like Jane Cox felt betrayed. Florence packed up the priory and retreated into isolation, where within two years she drank herself to death. Could her swift and self-induced demise have been the result of a guilty conscience? I'll leave that for you to decide. This leaves us with one loose end. What about those anonymous letters Charles received, accusing him of marrying Florence solely for her money? Now, there is no definitive proof concerning the source of the letters. They could have been sent by Dr. Gully. However, it is more than likely that they were sent by George Griffiths. Remember him? Griffiths was the coachman who got into an accident while driving Florence through London and was the first to be fired by Charles Bravo. The timing was right. He was fired in early December and didn't get another job until early in the new year. All of the letters were received within that time frame. Maybe that's what Griffiths was referring to when he was heard to say that Charles Bravo would get what was coming to him. Griffiths was ruled out as a suspect in the murder because he did not have access to Bravo's room that night, nor was he even in London. He was in Hearn Bay, some 65 miles from London, where he was in the employ of a Lady Prescott, who provided an alibi for him. Where the first inquest closed with an open verdict, implying suicide, the second coroner's inquest concluded that, quote, Charles Delaney Turner Bravo did not commit suicide, that he did not meet his death by misadventure, that he was willfully murdered by the administration of Tartari Medic, but there is not sufficient evidence to fix the guilt upon any person or persons. End quote. And there you have the unanswerable question. Who killed Charles Bravo? I would love to hear what you think. You can offer your thoughts and opinions on Twitter. Follow the podcast at blunt underscore history. Or weigh in on Facebook at Blunt History. I can't begin to tell you how much I appreciate your listening to Blunt History. It takes a lot of work to research, write, and produce each episode. And as much as this is a hobby for me, I am really doing it for you. I'll just ask for one thing in return. If you like the show, please help me grow the audience by rating and reviewing the podcast in whatever app you use to listen. I know ratings and reviews help maintain visibility in iTunes. So please, take a moment and let everyone know what you think about Blunt History. If you want to take your support a step further, you can visit Blunt History's Patreon page and become a patron of the podcast. In return for your contribution, I'll provide you with some exclusive content. You can find a link to the Patreon page at BluntHistory.com. I'm not sure what the next episode holds in store for us as of yet. I'm thinking about delving into historic Angels of Death, 
specifically Dr. Joseph Mengele from the Second World War and Louis de Saint-Jus from the French Revolution. But you never know, something else might catch my attention in the meantime. Any way it goes, I hope you'll tune in to the next episode of Blunt History. Until then, I'm Greg Matelski. Take care. <laughs>